Welcome to the podcast for Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast for the latest updates and new episodes. You can also search for our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and tune in. Make sure to join us each Sunday at 9 on Facebook Live. Our in-person service times are 9 and 10.30 a.m. in English and 11.45 in Spanish. Also, Celebrate Recovery meets each Monday night at 6.30. Imagine a world uh, where your faith requires action, where what you believe is not just some private thing that you keep to yourself and you don't really talk about it with the people around you. Um, We're acting on what we believe. It's not just for the radical, for the fanatic, but it's, it's, it's the reality for all. Faith and action together are, are completely normal. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about a world like that. First century, the first century AD, uh, the Roman Empire is at the height of its power. One of the strongest empires that, that we've ever known of in human history. And though many, many had hoped that the Messiah would come to overthrow this empire, to come in and kick them out of power and introduce you know, the Messiah as the king. Instead, uh, a Messiah comes as a suffering servant, not a conquering hero. A, a Messiah who would ultimately lay down his life. He, he would suffer a criminal's death on a cross. And, and with all the religious elite applauding, scoffing, spitting at him, Many of those who once follow him are are now scattering, even his own disciples. Those that that got a front row seat on the life and ministry and teaching of this Messiah, even they disown him. But something happens. Something happens after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Some of the doubters, some of the skeptics, some of those on the outside looking in, they come to faith. After witnessing this resurrection, they're, they're changed They come to faith in Christ, professing that Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. But professing Christ wasn't easy, right? It wasn't easy. It was risky because not everyone was convinced, even after his resurrection, that Jesus was the Messiah. And many continued to oppose the way of Christ. It was a threat to their empire. It was a threat to their system. It was a threat to the religious order and structure that they had created in their own minds and lives. If you were alive, you could profess Christ, but only if you were willing to risk your life. To say, I believe Christ is Lord, it meant sacrificing everything. Everything. It changed how you believed, yes, but it it transformed how you lived and how you responded. No one had any conception of faith without action. Because to say, I have faith in Christ, meant a a life of action, of obedience. And this is the version, this is the version of the church that we see in the first century as Jesus ascends into heaven. A church of action. They served, they gave, read the book of Acts, they sacrificed, they preached and prayed and worshiped. They didn't just claim this to be true, they lived it as if it was true in their lives. Many of them gave their lives. That's how passionately they believed. That's how real their faith was to them. James, the brother of Jesus, is living in this reality, right? He, uh, where being a follower of Jesus meant more than just believing something. It meant belief in action. 
And so his brothers and sisters in Christ are being scattered, right? That's what James's context is, as he writes this letter that we've been reading. He's writing to his brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, who literally were risking their lives because of the faith that they believed. And they're scattered everywhere, and he's writing to them. And he wants them to remember, remember the foundation of the faith that they proclaim. It's a foundation of faith in action. And that's why, time and time again, he brings us back to this theme. And that's where we're going to be today. Uh, If you haven't been with us, we are in the book of James. And we are journeying along, I wouldn't say at a slow pace, at a good pace. We're not in a hurry. And we're soaking up uh, all the truth that God would have for us. Last week, Pastor Billy preached an incredibly powerful message out of James chapter 2. And we're going to be right back there again. Uh, So would you open your copy of scripture, if you have it on your phone, if you've got... Uh, your Bible with you, Uh, would you open to James 2? Uh, We're going to be in verse 14 today, and I'm going to ask you to remain seated this morning throughout uh, this series. We've been inviting you to stand for the reading of the Word, but I want to do something a little bit different today. As we go through the verses, I want to talk a little bit, and uh, some of you can't stand for more than a few seconds at a time, so I'll give you a break there. Relax, have a seat, exhale, but let's read in the Word, and if you could have it in front of you, I think it's so dynamic for us to be on the same page of scripture together. We believe this is the word of the Lord, not just written thousands of years ago, not just some historical document or account. We believe that God's word is alive and active. And so as we read it today, right now, we believe his word is still speaking to us. This is God's word for us today. Join me, James 2, verse 14. He begins with a question. A question. James, the brother of Jesus, in the midst of uh, of this reality of faith and action, right? He begins with a question. What good is it? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? He begins with these two questions that everything else that comes after this verse, everything else that comes after these questions is just going to emphasize and reemphasize this main idea. That James is not saying, he's not saying that our works save us. He's not saying we're saved by our actions. But what he is saying is it is impossible to separate what we believe and how it impacts the way we live. Let me say that again. It is impossible to separate what we believe and how it impacts the way that we live. Don't forget this, he's saying. Don't forget it, that our saving faith is shown by how we live and how we respond and how we act. And without action, it's not even faith. It's not really faith at all. So then he offers, he offers a practical example. Join me in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Right? They don't have what they need. Verse 16, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed but they do nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead, is dead. This is a theme throughout James' writings. We've heard it some, we're hearing it today, we're going to continue to hear it. It's unimaginable to James that as a believer in Jesus Christ, to claim and believe, I have faith, that Jesus is Lord, and yet I see a need around me. It is impossible for him, unimaginable, that you would see a need and not be a part of meeting that need. That's the DNA we see in the early church, right? That, and James is re-emphasizing it, that faith, listen, faith without action, it's not just weak, 
It's not just sick. It's not just misguided. Faith without action is dead. It's dead. Faith that is alive is a faith that's active and responding, right? And James doesn't offer any possibility, any room for margin here of a faith that doesn't bear fruit in our everyday lives. So then, what does he say? Verse 18, but someone will say, someone might say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Like, you're good at the faith thing. You're good at believing and trusting and, and, and you've got that all down, but I've got the deeds down. I'm good at action, right? Show me your faith without deeds, James says, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, these are not two alternate versions of faith. They're one in the same. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Well, good, even the demons believe that and they shudder. If you don't have faith, James is saying, in other, if you have faith but you don't act on it, you're essentially on par with a demon. Think about that. The demons believe in God, but their belief doesn't impact how they live, right? Finally, verse 20, we're getting there. You foolish person. You fool, James says. You want evidence that faith without deeds is useless, is worthless? You want evidence that this faith in words only but without action is worthless? Remember, a chapter ago in verse 22 of chapter 1, James says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, right? So we're reminded that living without action is self-deception, but now James calls the one who lives without action foolish. It's not just that we're deceiving ourselves, we're, we're fools. So now pay close attention because everything else we're going to talk about is about this example. He's going to give a, a practical example, not just to the Jewish uh, listeners of the day, but to those of us thousands of years later that would now read these words. Here's his example of faith in action. Verse 21, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. The New Living Translation says this, that his actions made his faith complete. I like that. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. See, in these passages, James is going to offer two proofs. That is, readers would know well. Abraham, we're going to focus a little bit on uh, this week. And then Rahab, another well-known example that we'll focus on next week. But these are two examples of faith made real by their action, right? Faith in action. And James is writing to fellow Jews, so every Jew would know Abraham. They knew well the story of Abraham. He was their father, a hero of their faith, an example of faithfulness and obedience. Every good Jewish boy, girl, would be raised knowing the story of Abraham. But, but Abraham's life was not just about the faith he professed. And, and that was something, because Abraham was living in a polytheistic world, and, and he chose to profess faith in one God, the true God, but it was not just enough that he professed faith. He displayed it through his action. You know the story well. Um, forgive me for jumping away from James for a minute, but it's in Genesis 22. 
The story that James is referencing here is one that you might be familiar with. And if you're not, it's in Genesis 22. I'm going to start with the first couple verses here on the screen. And this is it. This is the story that James points us to. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Think about what God tested for a minute. Think about what God is testing in Abraham. Abraham's faith, right? Isn't that what he's testing? Uh, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham's obedience. Is this a faith that responds, that acts in obedience, right? Isn't that really what Genesis 22 verse 1 is saying? God tested Abraham. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Maybe you're familiar with the story Uh, Today, maybe you're not, but the rest of the story in in the scripture uh, might look something like this.
a sacrifice. Oh, my boy, my boy, my boy. <laughs> this uh, with tears streaming down my face. Abraham's faith in action. Talk about challenging. There's a lot of words we can use to describe that story. <laughs> challenging might be an understatement. Can I, can I be honest with you today? This story is, is so challenging for me. <laughs> I actually had to spend a pretty significant amount of time this week just wrestling with this question of why. Not, not why does James point us here. I, I think that's it's really clear. But for me, as I've grown up, I knew this story of Genesis 22. I could have told you it word for word almost. But for me, I, I had to spend some time this week asking the question, why, God, why would you ask Abraham to do that? I mean, again, if, if you don't know the context, Isaac is Abraham's only legitimate heir, right? And Abraham was 100 years old when he was born. I feel 100 years old sometimes when I try to parent my kids, but I'm, I'm not there yet. And Isaac was literally a miracle, literally a miracle. And, and he was the fulfillment, not just of Abraham's deepest desire, but of God's promise. God had said, I'm going to use your descendants, Abraham, to bring a blessing, to be a blessing. We know that through Abraham's descendants, we will get Jesus. So we understand that Isaac is literally a miracle. And yet, in this story, God commands, he doesn't ask, he commands Abraham to offer him up. So can I just be honest with you? I I've got questions. I'm reading, I'm watching this story, and I'm like, wait, God, this, this doesn't make sense to me. So, so at the risk of not taking us down a completely different trail this morning, I want to I talk to you briefly about that why and, and why I believe it points us back to James. Maybe this will help you uh, if you wrestle a little bit with the tensions in the scripture and not just treat this as like, well, that's a cute Bible story. But no, if you really wrestle like me with well, what kind of a God would ask that of Abraham, I want to share with you briefly some ways that I've wrestled with that tension this week. First, uh, put yourself again in Abraham's place and say, why would God do this? Why? Well, first... Uh, it's important to know that this story, this story was not just about Abraham. And we know that because we're reading, we're reading thousands, you know, literally James is writing about this story generations and generations and generations later. And we're reading about the story thousands of years after that. So literally, while this story in the moment seems to be about Abraham, it's about much more than that. There's something bigger happening here than certainly what Abraham can see at the moment. Uh, it's fascinating as you study the Old Testament. There's these snapshots in the Old Testament. It's really cool for us because we get to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. So there's actually some snapshots throughout the Old Testament, and they call it 
prophetic reenactment. And that's like a really big, but, but what it means is this. We get these snapshots throughout the Old Testament that point to something prophetic that's going to happen. And we see it several examples. We see it with Hosea in the Old Testament. We see it with Ezekiel. But we see it here that through Abraham's incredible obedience, we see a foreshadowing of something that we know about, but those originally hearing the story would not. See, for generations, they grew up hearing about their forefather Abraham in, in this act of obedience. But see, we get to read this story on the other side of the cross. And so we get to see this incredible story of the incredible act of obedience as a foreshadowing of God the Father offering his son as a sacrifice, placing his son on the altar. And so we get to see and understand that this story, while it's hard to understand, God is pointing supernaturally, prophetically, towards a moment when another father would offer his son for all of humanity. So we get to step outside of the lens, certainly, James is using this example to appeal to a Jewish audience, but he also knows Abraham's story as a clear vision of seeing it through the lens of the new covenant of Jesus. Number two, the reason, the reason as I, I wrestle with this why question, I, I have to come back to this idea that there are instances, there are times when, when our finite, limited brains cannot understand when you were a child, there were many things, many times your parents asked you to do something. No, they told you to do something, and you didn't agree with it. You didn't understand it. You didn't even like it. It made you angry sometimes. You were mad at them. You said some choice words that probably got you in more trouble than if you would have, right, right? There are moments when we resisted, we rejected the authority of those that God had entrusted over us. And maybe this is perhaps the ultimate example of that, Right? God is asking Abraham to do something, and it's ridiculous. And it's, why would you do this? But, but we have to understand and trust that maybe God is up to something much bigger than we understand. Finally, as we wrestle with this story, and this is what gets us back to James. God is ultimately asking Abraham, will you give it all for me? Abraham, is there anything you're holding on to today so tightly that you won't Give it up for me. Is there anything, is there anything that's holding you back from a place of total surrender? And that is the same question he asks of us today. That is the reason James points us here. Because the question ultimately that God is asking Abraham is, will you place it all on the altar for me? See, James shows that Abraham's faith was real because it was willing to act. Not just any action, not, not just the action that comes easy. No, James points us to one of the most extreme examples of faith in recorded human history. It's so remarkable, it borders on ridiculous, and it makes me, I'm going to be honest, really uncomfortable. It's that extreme. But in the end, Abraham's faith was alive. Why was it alive? Because it acted. The question is, is yours? Is your faith alive? Is your faith alive? Uh, the bottom line for us today is this, that faith, faith that's alive is faith that acts. Faith that's alive is faith that acts. We see in James 2 that faith without action is dead. It's not just wavering. It's not just 
temporary. It's not just fleeting. It's dead. It's dead faith. And so the opposite of that is this. That faith that's alive is faith that acts. And that's what we see in the life and the story of Abraham. Real faith, it doesn't pick and choose where we obey. Real faith compels us to action no matter what. No matter what. I brought along a a visual for us today, and I'm going to pull it out uh, and talk a little bit about it. This is kind of a modern day, right, Uh, depiction of an altar. I I don't have to tell most of you that. You kind of know that. And the Old Testament altar obviously is very different. You see a depiction in the video, but often the Old Testament altar was made of stone or a pile of rocks. It looked nothing like this. But this is just our modern day interpretation, representation of an altar. But we understand in the Old Testament what the altar represented. The altar in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, it was the place of worship. It was the place where you would bring the sacrifice. And if you read through the Old Testament Torah, there were all kinds of specifics. And we read that and we're like, man, this is really technical. But it was, it was an act of worship under the Old Covenant. Because we know under the New Covenant, Jesus was the sacrifice, right? But under the Old Covenant, they would bring a, a sacrifice for sin. And they would place it on the altar. And there was nothing about the sacrifice in and of itself that was special. It was what you had. It was what was required by the law. But by placing it on the altar, it became sacred. Because it became no longer belonging to me, but I place it on the altar and now it belongs to him. He makes it holy. He makes it sacred because it is on his his altar. I heard a story one time. I heard a story one time of, a, of an evangelist, and he grew up in a really rough experience. He knew nothing about God and nothing about the church, and he, he, uh, he knew nothing about any, any of that. And then one day, uh, somebody invited him to a camp, and honestly, I think he was hungry, so he just went because they promised food. And one night at the kids' camp, they, the, a speaker got up, and he invited anybody that wanted to come forward to receive Christ. And He didn't totally understand everything that the speaker was saying, but his heart was moved and he said, I want to respond. And so he came forward to an altar that looked something like this. He knew nothing about the church. He knew nothing about God. And he came up and he didn't know any better. So no one else was around. No one else had come forward. He came forward and he literally just sat on the altar. He didn't know any better. He didn't know to kneel. He didn't know to pray. He didn't really even know what it was for. He just sat himself there on the altar. I was thinking about that story this week. I was thinking about the story of Abraham, faith in action. And I really thought about, you know, isn't that the visual for us today? Will you place, not, not just your Sunday morning, not just the parts of you that, well, God, I'll give you this, and I'll give you that, and I'm okay acting, I'm okay obeying in this area of my life, I'm okay responding here, but would you get to a place in your life, this is what Abraham's story shows us, isn't it? Where you say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to put myself on the altar. I'm not holding anything back from you, God. I'm not, I don't feel like I've got that much to give, but what I have to give, God, it's, it's yours. We place ourselves on his altar. Isn't that really the question today? What are you holding on to? What are the things in your life that while you would say you trust God, you would say, oh, I have faith in him, when it comes down to it, you're not willing to place it on his altar. 
Can I be really honest with you that there are moments in my life where I sense the Lord asking, and, and while I wish I could say, oh man, it's all there, there's moments in my life where I've, I've had to wrestle. I've had to have the Holy Spirit reveal to me, Adrian, I think you're holding back from me. When we started our adoption journey, those of you that don't know uh, our story, we, we adopted our, our daughter several years back, and it took a long journey of several disrupted adoptions. But I remember stepping forth, and one of the th- I'm embarrassed to admit it, one of the reasons I was scared to say yes to the Lord is finances. I know that's so silly, but I was overwhelmed and overcome. How is this going to cost? How am I going to provide for another person, God? And it's almost like I was saying, God, I'll trust you, but I won't place that on the altar. And then there were other parts of that journey where I became scared of, of getting hurt, scared of, of what's going to happen to my family, what's going to happen through the, the hurt and pain of the disruption of that process. There were times when I would say, Lord, I didn't realize it, but I was saying, Lord, I'll trust you, but I can't trust you with that. The question that James 2 asks us today is, will you, will you allow your faith a faith that says, God, I believe. God, you, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Will that faith in your life result in action? Action that says, Lord, I'm not just going to place part of me. I'm not just going to give you the stuff that I feel good about. I'm not just going to say, oh, I'm ready to give you this, Lord. I'm, will you have a faith that says, God, here I am. Here I am. It's all yours. I don't know why you'd want this. I don't know what what you can do with this, but I'm not going to hold back anymore. It's it's all yours, God. I I surrender. I I trust you. I'm not just going to say that I love you, God. I'm not just going to say that I trust you. It's got to show up in my life, moment by moment, day by day, that I trust you. Today, um, some of us, there's some places in our life where our our faith the faith that we proclaim doesn't match maybe the obedience or our lack of obedience there's places in our life where we would say oh god i trust you oh you are lord of my life but in our actions we're holding on to something and today james points us to one of the most radical stories of obedience to say Can you today trust him with it all? In a minute, we're going to sing a song. It's really a prayer, and I think it's our prayer for today. So while uh, the band leads us in this song, I want to pray for you. God, today, our desire is to trust you. Our desire is to hold nothing back. Our desire is that our faith, faith that says, Jesus, your Lord, your Lord, you can have it all, that today we would place ourselves on your altar. There's nothing holy about us. There's nothing sacred about us. But when we place ourselves on your altar, Lord, you make us holy. You set us apart. You can use us for your divine purposes, God. So today we're we're listening. Our ears are open. Our hearts are open. Come and speak to us, Lord. Have your way in us today. Thank you so much for listening today. You can email us at info at cotnaz.org for any questions about our church. 
When you're done listening, please subscribe to this channel for the latest updates and new episodes.